Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Alan Buchanan will join us to discuss our moral fate. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, is tribalism part of our innate human mind, or is there something that we can do to change our moral fate? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Alan Buchanan. Dr. Buchanan is a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Freedom Center at the University of Arizona and distinguished research fellow at the Oxford Hero Center for Practical Ethics. He is the author of numerous academic articles and several books, including Institutionalizing the Just War and The Heart of Human Rights. He has penned the new book, Our Moral Fate. Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. Professor Buchanan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. It's certainly a fascinating book you've put together, Our Moral Fate, in which you really explore whether or not we can escape the us versus them mentality. Well, it just seemed to me that tribalism in the United States was really increasing and getting out of hand and having all sorts of destructive effects. And I looked around and I couldn't find a really good analysis of it, a good understanding of it. I think we have to understand it in order to combat it. So I started getting into it. And one of the things that hit me over the head very quickly is that tribalism is much worse than polarization. Polarization just means there's an increasing distance between people's positions on substantive issues about policy. That's bad enough, but people who are on different sides of an issue can still respect each other and can still compromise and bargain with each other. But tribalism drives out compromise and bargaining. It views the other, the people you're opposed to, as contemptible, as either incredibly stupid or incredibly insincere or both. And consequently, they're not people that you can engage with. They're not people you can compromise or bargain with. They're not entitled to your respect. You've just written them off. And this is very toxic. This is very, very dangerous to democracy, for one thing. But I think it's also dangerous just to our basic moral outlook, because the tribalistic mentality really deprives the opposition of their humanity. Part of what it is to be human is to be able to reason, to be reasoned with. And if you view people as not being able to do that, you're degrading them. That's often how groups are segregated, is by making them viewed as other or less than human and not able to be reasoned with. That's exactly right. You know, the most extreme case of this is concentration camps where individuals are pinned together and they're made to look anonymous. Their heads are shaved, they're given uniforms, and they're put in squalid conditions. And then unsurprisingly, they start exhibiting some pretty selfish behavior. And the conclusion is, well, these are just animals. They're not really human. So people can construct environments in which it's easier to regard the other, the other group as subhuman. And unfortunately, we're very good at doing that kind of thing. If we have a propensity for it, if there's an aspect of our morality built in, or is it something that is cultivated? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that in, in terms of our evolved moral psychology, I think there is a, a capacity for, for being tribalistic. But I think there's also a capacity for relating to other people in a more inclusive way. And the question is, how do you 
get the better side of our of our nature to the forefront and suppress the tribalistic side. And I think the only answer to that is by understanding the relationship between our moral psychology and the social environment in which we operate. In some social environments, you're going to get tribalistic responses, and in other ones, you may have an opportunity to get more inclusive, tolerant kinds of responses. And I, I think by studying the history of moral change, how people's moral outlooks change, we can get some idea about what the relationship is between the moral mind and various social environments. I, I would liken it to the linguistic mind. You know, every normal human being has a linguistic mind. They have the capacity to learn a language. But which language they learn depends upon the social environment in which the capacities of the linguistic mind get exercised. And I think it's like that with morality. I think some environments are very friendly toward tribalism and uh, we've got to try to learn about those and try to reconstruct our environments to reduce the risk of tribalism. You posit what really is the big puzzle. If this is part of who we are as humans and society is essentially shaped by us, then how is it possible that we could ever break free of the chains of our biology? Well, now that's a wonderful question. I think that originally humans came to have moralities because moralities help them to cooperate. And we're the most successful cooperative species on the planet. That's why we dominate the planet. So I think originally uh, morality was really an adaptation. It was something that contributed to our reproductive fitness. But at a certain point, a lot of human beings, fairly recently, last two or 300 years, were able to construct environments where the pressures for reproductive fitness were greatly reduced. In other words, they achieved a kind of surplus reproductive fitness. And once that happened, Morality became unchained from the demands of fitness. It became possible for us to take moral positions and develop moral identities that weren't strictly controlled by the need for reproductive success. And that was a kind of liberation, and it allowed us to become less tribalistic. Are there good attempts at constructing societies that are more conducive to an inclusive environment? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You're, you're absolutely right that it takes effort because there's always, you know, within us this capacity for tribalism, and it can get triggered by various kinds of environmental cues. One of the triggers, believe it or not, is the fear that the other, the, the, the other people, the strangers, are infectious, that they're carrying diseases. Now, if you think about the early environment in which human beings first came to have a morality, they lived in scattered small groups. And if you encountered another human being from another group, he might be a threat to you biologically because he might be carrying an infection that your group is, has no immunity to. So there's a deep fear of infection. And this comes out in anti-immigrant discourse. For example, when President Trump talks about an infestation of migrants coming across the border, or when a Fox commentator says that some of the people in the caravan are carrying smallpox. This is classic. This is a classic discourse to trigger these very primordial negative feelings toward outgroup. It is in many ways easier to trigger these tribalistic tendencies than it is to build an inclusive society. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that it's only been, you know, very recently in human history, just a tiny time slice of human history, that some humans have been able to construct environments that were more friendly to inclusiveness, that made it not too costly in reproductive terms or material terms to act in a more welcoming way toward outgroups. Uh, but that's a fragile uh, accomplishment. And the problem is that Tribalism evolves. There are early forms of tribalism, and there are more sophisticated later forms. And I think we're seeing 
the evolution of tribalism now so that it used to be that tribalistic exclusive attitudes were directed toward people from other societies. That was the original form of it, like literal strangers. But now we've got a kind of intra-societal tribalism. That is, we've got tribalism where within our own society, we divide it up into us versus them and exhibit all of these extremely negative attitudes that our ancestors used to exhibit toward literal foreigners, people from other societies, other cultures. In some ways, it might be due to the size of our, our communities now. And in the past, obviously, you could know a lot of the people in your own tribe, but how are you supposed to know or vet anybody in a society of 300 million? Yeah, look, I think it does have to do with the scale and complexity of societies. That is, when societies got much larger and much more anonymous, where you really don't know, but a tiny percentage of people don't interact with them in, in a, a, a daily fashion. I think when, when things got complicated in that way, and when there were persisting groups within society who are now in competition with each other for cultural dominance, political dominance, economic dominance. Then you get cultural selective pressures that modify and cause tribalism to evolve. And now we have this very nasty kind of intra-societal tribalism. And tribalism promotes cooperation within your group, but at the expense of making it almost impossible for you to cooperate with opposing groups because you just exclude them, you dismiss them as all either stupid, you know, like the, the conservative term libtard, right? That's a good example. Branding the opposition as just stupid. The other tactic is to brand the opposition as insincere, that they're always behaving strategically. You can't believe a word they say. And for example, Rush Limbaugh says that Democrats don't really care about immigrants. They just want to get a lot of immigrants in and have open borders because they think they'll vote Democratic. Now, if you believe that, you've just accepted a kind of character assault on all liberals, right? They're all the same. And the convenient thing about that is because you've dismissed them as all insincere, you don't have to engage with them. You never get to the substance of arguments about border controls. You just dismiss them. So what are the steps then to solving this big puzzle? <laughs> well, look, uh, I don't purport to solve the puzzle in the book. I think I've done quite a lot if I've tried to get some clarity on what the problem is and what the difference is between tribalism and, and other kinds of negative attitudes about the other. But I do make some suggestions at the end of the book. I think that since the, the character of the environment is the key thing, in particular the character of the institutional environment, we have to think about institutions, especially political institutions, that would give people incentives to listen to the opposition, to bargain with them, and to compromise. I can think of at least three potential changes that could create those kinds of incentives. One would be to have a genuine multi-party system, right, instead of just this having to choose one big thinking bundle or the other big thinking bundle with nothing possible by way of mixing and matching. If you have multiple parties, you have to have compromise. You have to have coalitions. People have to listen to each other. They have to bargain. They have to compromise. Another possibility would be more use of a supermajority voting rule, because what that means is it, it forces you to gain allies and recruit coalitions to get the sufficient number of votes. One final possibility would be changing to some kind of proportional representation system, because again, that's something that promotes bargaining and compromise across party lines. But, you know, th this is a new problem in a way, this kind of intra-societal tribalism in modern, complex, large-scale societies. And so we, we don't have any solutions in our back pocket. We've got to devise solutions. And I'm just hoping that I've 
sort of started the ball rolling and gotten people, on the one hand, not to despair about tribalism and say, well, that's just our nature. There's nothing you can do about it. On the other hand, I want them to take seriously the, the, the options for trying to develop institutions, social environments that give people incentives not to act that way. Because if we don't succeed in quashing tribalism, it's not just the end of democracy, because democracy requires bargaining and compromise and some minimal level of mutual respect. I think it's the end of one of the major forms of progress in human morality. And that is, a lot of us in the last couple hundred years have learned to regard all other human beings as having some kind of equal basic moral status. They've all got, they've all got human rights, for example. Okay? Well, I think that the tribalistic mentality is undercutting that game because it's regarding people in the opposition as really, in a way, less than human, and hence not our equals. They're not reason-able beings. If you look across the globe, the trend seems to be similar, but are, are there places where these types of efforts, these types of steps are actually succeeding? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think that some countries have done better at it than others, but I, I agree. I think it's not just a U.S. problem. It's a, a problem in, in many parts of the world, uh, including Europe. And I think some societies have, until now, done pretty well in developing inclusive social norms and practices. But I'm thinking in particular of some of the Scandinavian countries, for example, Norway. But the problem is that they're now under tremendous pressure from immigration. And immigration is something that really triggers a lot of these primordial kinds of exclusive tribalistic responses. And so they're fighting the battle there, even in those countries that we come to regard as being pretty enlightened and tolerant of differences among people. They're having a rough go of, of trying to cope with not just with the flood of immigrants, but with the reactions of some of their fellow citizens to the, to the immigrants. And look, I feel for them. I have lots of friends in Norway. You know, Norway's like four and a half or five million people. And there's a limit to how many immigrants they can absorb without there being some fundamental changes in their society that might not be particularly good changes. I mean, they've built up a rather humane welfare state. They've had reforms. They've been excessive in their welfare provision at times, and they've pared back. But overall, I think you know, Norway's done a good job of running its own country. But it's not clear what Norway or, or Sweden or Finland would be like if there were massive numbers of immigrants who had really quite different cultural and political values. So I, I understand that there are legitimate concerns about outside groups, but uh, the question is, what's the mental attitude with which you approach those problems? And the tribalistic attitude just makes it impossible to have any sort of humane solutions. Are you optimistic that any escape from tribalism can really happen? You know, I don't think it'll ever be a total escape, and we'll always have to be watchful and on guard and trying to look out for signs that that side of our nature is asserting itself. But I'm really ambivalent. At times, I think that tribalism is so deeply entrenched in the U.S. that it's kind of like an arms race. If one side decided to try to not be tribalistic and the other side didn't, they'd be at a tremendous disadvantage. So it, it has a kind of ghastly stability to it. On the other hand, sometimes I think that maybe we have to bottom out. <laughs> Things have to get so bad. It has to be so glaringly obvious that uh, the tribalistic approach to politics is not fruitful, that it's terribly destructive, that people will sort of wake up and say, something fundamental has to change. Okay, that's a, a possibility. But again, I don't think the change is going to come about by people sort of pulling up their moral socks and saying, oh, let's be civil to each other. I think it's going to be a matter of changing incentives, and that usually means institutional change. But, you know, am I 
optimistic or pessimistic? Well, you know, on even days of the week, I'm pessimistic, and on other days, I'm optimistic, and I'm constantly wildly ambivalent. But I'll tell you one thing. Whatever some people on the left may think, tribalism is not going to go away if Biden is a winner of the election. Trump may have uh, risen to power in part on a wave of tribalism, but tribalism was there before him, and it'll be there after him. Well, maybe to close, do you have any final words regarding your book, Our Moral Fate? Well, I hope that uh, a lot of people read it. You know, I've spent most of my career reading, writing rather stodgy, scholarly books, and I tried this time to write one that was a bit more accessible and entertaining, and I hope I succeeded, and I would be very happy if people would take a look at it. It's from MIT Press. It's called Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. You can get it on Amazon, or you can order it directly from MIT. We were just talking with Professor Alan Buchanan. Again, his new book, Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. Professor Buchanan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.